Ladies, gentlemen, welcome to the human energy field. As always, I'm your host, Henry, and as always, joined by my co-host, Jamie. How are you doing tonight, Jamie? Hola, I am doing well. Thank you very much. Uh, excited to be back on the mic. Back on the mic, back where we belong. Often imitated, never replicated. It's all getting a bit It's all getting a bit 90s hip-hop now, isn't it? Hey, I mean, we could take it that way if you really wanted to, mate. If you want to go back to the grill again, that's where we'll go. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Although we do have a special guest to come on to get exactly uh, 90s hip-hop with us, but that'll stay tuned oh, for maybe yeah, a bonus episode, yeah. you know? Yeah. I feel like it's prudent to begin the episode with a little brief announcement for you guys. If you're listening to our podcast, then I'm sure... You enjoy role-playing games, maybe even Dungeons and Dragons, maybe even playing games with friends around tables in real life. If these align with your interests, then you'll be happy to know. Trial by Dice is coming up at the end of next month. That's the end of November, Sunday the 28th to be exact. Trial by Dice is a, I don't want to say annual, or used to be an annual event, hosted by friends of the show, long-time friends, the Dungeon Punks, and it's back. And we're going to be there. And I'm excited. As always, taking place in the Temple of Boom in Leeds. Uh, myself and Jamie are both going to be turning up. Jamie, are you playing or are you dungeon mastering this time around? Um, well, uh, the previous um, couple of Try by Dices, I GM the first time and then I was a player the second time. Um, and I have been thinking on this Battles and Forwards, but yeah, I'm, I've, I've gone for a player ticket. So I've, uh, I'm going to be playing this time. I had good fun. Um, playing last time, GM was great. Uh, I was actually ended up being on the on the table of the guy who won last um, last time round when it when it occurred. Um, more into how you can win at Dungeons and Dragons in a minute, but um, yeah, he was a great DM, and I you know I met some great guys around the table, and I always love catching up with as you say the Dungeon Bunks guys and some other guys and stuff. And I'm especially looking forward to this year because as like most of us, if not all of us. You know, we haven't seen people for a while and, you know, it's going to be nice to catch up with um, the people that I speak to digitally quite often um, and get them all in one room and, and you know, share that, that time playing. Although Dungeons & Dragons is not my favourite game, I've always said this, um, I can let that slide for the purposes of, uh, you know, community and fun and uh, charity because... Uh, Dungeon Punks are always um, doing this for non-profit and charity. So, you know, when you support a Dungeon Punks event, you are also supporting some good causes and some good people. So even more reasons to get involved. Pay your fiver, go to Dungeon Punks, follow the links to wherever you, you listen to them, Instagram, whatever, and um, get yourself a ticket. It's well worth the trip, um, even if you just go up and down for the day Um or, you know, come the day before or whatever you have to do. It's uh, it's always a great day, and, and I'm sure this will be no no exception. It is. It's a lot of fun. I always look forward to it. So if you fancy that, um, coming up at the end of November in Leeds, UK, uh, have a Google Dungeon Punks Trial by Dice, um, get yourself a ticket, or alternatively, message me or Jamie, and we can poke you in the right direction to get yourself a ticket for this. Uh, we'll both be there, so do come and say hi. Um, I will be selling copies of my book, Care Mundus, as well. And there may just be one copy up for a prize for a very uh, lucky player or DM. So if you fancy a chance of winning a copy of Care Mundus, then do come down to Leeds and uh, take part. And who knows, you might get you might get lucky. I think it's also worth noting out that um, it's a waning crescent moon on uh, the 28th of November. So... Um you know, eat sensibly at that, that weekend as well. I so. appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. Cool. 
yeah, yeah, very. That's probably the most important part of this whole episode now. So, listeners, you can go ahead and just turn off the episode now. That's uh, as long as you, you're aware of the lunar cycle for the end of November. What else do you really need to know? Hey, you know, for those who you know aren't aren't paying enough attention, looking at you know our sister Luna, so these lunatics i don't know do they <laughs> but yeah it would be great i'm really looking forward to it so guys come down to trial by dice um we i imagine we'll chat about how it went uh, after it's happened so um if you're listening further afield just stay tuned to hear about how the day went um no doubt there'll be instagram stuff going on as well so you can follow from afar no do you know what i think you were saying we'll, we'll tell people how it went um, I've just thought of this now, so um, you know, throwing this out there, maybe what mm-hmm. we should do is a special kind of post trial by dice um, episode where we can maybe get a couple of people on who were there, um, tell us about the games they ran or the games they played in, or the event they were running themselves. If we get Igor or Body or whatever on, or or just whoever we meet down there, we can maybe shout out and and see who wants to come on and and do like a full episode of you know trial by dice reminiscence breakdown post mortem mm-hmm. etc. I think it's worth doing. I like that, yeah. Post trial by dice, little PTBD. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so what you're saying is whoever buys us the most drinks will get to come on. Is that what you're 100%, saying? 100%. 100%. Yeah, okay. Want to be famous? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come and say hi either way. Uh, there'll be hugs going all around. I'm probably, um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a looking forward to seeing people I've not seen in a long time. Uh, looking forward to seeing people for the first time who I know are coming this year, who've not been in previous years. Um so yeah, just come and say hi. I'll be the uh, chiselled, handsome, charming individual, stand out for miles. You you won't be able to miss me, Jamie. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you can't miss Jamie. You can spot Jamie a mile away, but yeah, we are easy to find and uh, very much looking forward to uh, meeting you guys. It's going to be great. What is trial by dice, Jamie? How does it work? So uh, I've got to preface this with, you know, anything we say isn't, you know, official Dungeon Punks literature. I can just say how we found it in in the years past. So I'm probably, you know, butchering the idea if if those guys are listening, I apologize. But I think I'll get the essence of it right. Um, It's a day when people can get together and in the loosest sense of the term possible, play competitive D&D. It's competitive in the sense that the GMs will all be assigned random players. They will play uh, an adventure throughout the day. And then the players will anonymously score the DMs on various categories, fun, inclusion, whatever, all that kind of stuff. And then those scores will be tallied and one of these DMs will come out the in brackets winner. Um, but I think they would love to say that, you know, it, the main thing is about everybody getting together, um, playing, having fun. Uh, the competitive element of it is is kind of you know just a, a very small minor byproduct. That's just a nice thing to do, um, because at the end of the day, as we've always said, and uh, it's one of my mantras, you know, if you are having fun, then you are playing it right, and you know you're winning the game. Um, but it is competitive D and D. So uh, it's as I say, I've, I've ran a game the first year, and then I played the second year, and I think the idea was. The GMs would not come with a story pre-prepared. They would meant to sit down and they are given three words, um, which all GMs get the same three words. And they are those three words are meant to inspire the GM to create an adventure specifically for that day, for those players. Uh, and there's a period of time at the beginning where players can create their characters and GMs can fashion the game and then they go ahead and play in a set time limit, which is obviously, you know, the, the full day on the Sunday. Um I don't have an issue with this, but I did notice on on both occasions that there were definitely 
GMs who came with a fully fleshed out adventure um, beforehand. And like I say, I don't mind if people are having fun. That's great. I don't really think that fits the spirit of it. But I also can appreciate that some people maybe just aren't great at fashioning a, a really exciting adventure on the fly, um, you know, or at very short notice. So I think you've got to do what's best for you. Um, but I do believe previously the idea was to just to come with no plan and then to plan everything on the day. And I think that that's part of what makes it a challenge because everybody can spend weeks or months fashioning a, a, a finely honed adventure with, you know, um, exciting subplots and, you know, all of these little twisting, turning things in it. But to do that with very short notice um, with a player group you don't know is is a skill, you know, and is a talent. And, a, and I think that's maybe originally what the winners or the prizes were meant to be kind of um, promoting this idea that those GMs who had managed to fashion something um, very clever and, and funny at short notice were to be rewarded for that, really. I think that's part of the fun uh, of the of the day. And I I try my best to make sure I don't bring many ideas with me when I turn up, you know, I might, you know, any GM has probably a couple of things up their sleeve just by default, you know. Of course, yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll try my best not to, uh, you know, arrive with a fully pre-written adventure and use whatever they give me. And then when I'm doing that and I'm trying to improv and stuff and looking around and s some of the other GMs, I can like, oh, you wrote that months ago, man. He's got, he's brought things to prepared for it and he's brought like whatever maps and things. Yeah, it's a, you know, luckily I don't take it very seriously. <laughs> Um, I, I tend to personally use Trial by Dice as a bit of a playground and it's where I experiment with a lot of things as a GM that I might not get to do otherwise and just kind of have a fuck about with it and just see what I can come up with. So um, I've not won one yet because I don't. my scores aren't, aren't ever the highest because I'm not, I don't ever play to get high scores. I just play to... Uh, enjoy myself and hopefully give the players a good time, you know. And those two, those things don't always align up with, you know. Did he stick to the rules? Well, I can tell you right now, I ain't going to stick to the rules. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, I think it just depends on on the day and depends on the sort of player group you get and that kind of thing. But either way, everyone always walks away smiling, happy, like you said. And I think that's just the measure of a of a good time. Yeah, I think what's really interesting with D and D as well is that um, D and D is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And, and I think, especially as D&D has evolved into the, I'm going to go out there and say it, is, is more of a mainstream hobby than it ever has been. Um, and also, to, to bring back to the word competitive, I think some a lot, a lot of players, and obviously not all, everybody is different, but I do think there is a, um, a movement of players in Dungeons & Dragons to what we used to call min-max their characters and mm -hmm. look at combos that make themselves very powerful in the game in order to, in brackets, win. Um, and I think that's more prevalent than it's ever been in D&D. And I don't necessarily blame the players because I, I also think maybe that's the way Dungeons & Dragons is written now. Um, you know, these uh, I'm constantly reading articles online about uh, this spell has been depowered and, and this combo is now amazing and this official subclass now allows you to combine this with this. And it's like, it's it's doing all these things to create this formula to get this this winning character. And I think that's a real shame. Um, it would, only because that's not the way I want to play D&D. &D. Um, and I know that some people do want to play it that way. 
But I think it appeals to this player base who are used to creating winning combos in things like Magic the Gathering or in modern Warhammer 40k. You know, these things where if you put X with Y, then that's going to be the most powerful thing that you can do at that moment. Um, and you know that, that there are players who will who will play D&D like that more than more than uncommonly, I think. Um, so that that's part of what gives D&D this kind of competitive mindset. Yeah, there's lots of ways you could define competitive role-playing, isn't there? And that's one of them. You know, if the players are competitive against the GM, then that involves them trying to get the best builds, trying to max out whatever combos they've got, you know, and that they see it as they're trying to beat the the game and the system rather than another approach that might be taken, which is, you know, a more story-based something where the GM and the players are together trying to beat the world or, you know, however you want to do it. So I think competitive as a word is quite an umbrella term there are lots of ways you could interpret that um i know for example if i had a turn up to trial and i've got a group of players who all are that type of player and they've all min maxed their builds and they've come with the best combos and stuff i won't have a, a, a world that is ready to accept those type of characters you know they'll have no one to fight at, at that level their, their combos will be useless they might as well just uh do what's something that makes them fun and i'll try and riff off that instead of okay, okay well You've got all these combos ready to attack and defeat. All these things I've meticulously laid out with all the rules ready to accept your um, game-breaking attacks and whatever it might be, you know. I don't I don't write games like that, so uh, I don't invite those kind of um, characters to be made for my games, if that makes sense. I think also that this really highlights part of what's a major problem for modern D&D with me is that characters are so powerful... Um, and it's really hard to kill characters in D&D, especially mm. if you have a party. I mean, I've said this before on the show. Um, you know, everything with the, the defensive capabilities that you have, the fact that it's, even when you drop to zero hit points, it's so hard to actually die due to your death saves and people being able to come over and stabilize you and stuff like that. It's, it's the other, the rest of your party has to have a real vested interest in you dying for you to be able to die in D&D. Um, mm. And that's even if you get to that point. Because I believe, off the top of my head, I think there's a third level or fifth level. Third level, I think we play um, Tribitises, third level characters. By that point, I mean, all characters are monsters, like real powerful, you know, high hit points, high damage dealing. Um, and, and I think it's it's really gone the opposite direction with D&D. I think it's, we now have the, the current threat ratings and um, kind of balance for the for the DM to create encounters is much lower than it needs to be for the party. Um, almost so that all of the traditional weak monsters, wolves, goblins, whatever, I mean, pose no real threat to even starting characters. So you might as well throw away all those kind of basic level monsters that would be your your meat and gravy to, to starting characters in many other editions. Um, and I mean, this power creep's been coming for a while. You know, it's come out at 3.5. It was really bad in 4, but it, it just hasn't slowed down at all. So we do have these really powerful characters, and then making these combos with them makes them even more deadly and, and throws the encounter balance out entirely. So it's, it's got to be hard for DMs to, to finally tune that encounter level. Do you think there's a um, competitive element from the DM standpoint, do you think there's it's something that they should keep in mind when uh, when writing or prepping games for players like that? You know what I mean? There shouldn't be. And, you know, if you've read enough role-playing games, you would have read these words in some fashion over and over again. This is not player versus DM. You should not sit down with a role-playing game thinking, 
I need to beat the GM or as the GM I need to beat the players because let's be honest you get down to brass tacks if I'm the GM I can say a lightning ball comes down out of the sky and kills you done I win like and, and that that is literally it or I can throw a huge giant dragon at you and you know destroy you in two minutes so I mean there's no real there shouldn't be competition there because the GM should always win but I think to to step back from that if the GM is providing encounters at the right level and the player characters have created characters who are at the same level, then I think there is this idea of, oh, well, I've beaten the GM in this encounter, and that's kind of fair. The GM's brought his arsenal, I've brought mine. Mine is better because I know I know how to manipulate the rules of D&D in, in such a way that my character is can beat this level 3 monster or level 4 monster, whatever it happens to be. So I think there's more and more of that in D&D. And as I've said before, I think D&D almost promotes this. And especially the the slew of writers, uh, you know, online and who are constantly highlighting to players the new way to win. It, there's a real industry of these people putting these combos together for players. So that this internet hive mind can just can tell you straight away what is the way to break the game. But then they seem to be enjoying that. So I guess, you know, that's how you want to play, then have have at it, I guess, you know? Yeah, that's part of our ethos, isn't it, man? If they're, if they're yeah. playing and they're having a nice time, then what can we say about it? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, to drag back to the idea of competitive D&D, I mean, there has been tournaments and people competing at D&D ever since the 70s. I mean, you know, when you, when you have these conventions and the early Gen Cons and everything, and there will be tournament-style scenarios written for for all GMs to take away or for GMs to run for multiple player groups. And you can judge the success of the player group on how far they got through the dungeon, how much gold they recovered, um, basically how much experience points maybe they could earn back in the day when it was like, you know, this monster's worth this much experience, a gold piece is worth an experience point, you know, defeating this thing is worth experience. Um, and there were certain experience rewards for defeating traps and doing whatever. And there may even be a bonus for role-playing, who knows? Um, <laughs> unlikely but and then you would see which player group has managed to um, you know beat the dungeon the most out of the other player groups so there's always been that idea of competing but it's not really competing within the game it's almost like like sitting down to a video game playing pac-man or whatever and putting your high score into the machine <laughs> then another player will come along who plays the same game but then might play it better and gets to put their score in so you're actually comparing two separate players um experiences yeah progress side by side rather than within that nucleus of player gm group that's where the competition shouldn't be it should be that group competing with another external group yeah you're i love it when you talk about video games man it's like hearing my dad talk about it (laughs) no well that's it pac-man i couldn't think of another one but yeah yeah, you know anything anything you put a high score into asteroids or something you know what i mean yeah there you go yeah yeah. one of those new ones yeah Yeah, one of those modern games i did uh this was years ago now but i did down in uh, the south of england one time take part in a 24 player D D mega dungeon tournament wow and it was Oh, it was um, 24 players, so six tables of four players, each with a DM. And the DMs all had the same enormous map of this mega dungeon. And we all started, uh, we found afterwards, we all started on kind of different, you know, imagine the dungeon is like a circle and we all started around the edge of the circle to work our way in. 
So we all essentially had our own route to go, all happening in real time. And there were like referees, if you like, uh, going around watching everyone's progress and seeing where we were all going. And if, for example, one group crossed another group's path, one of the referees would go between the two DMs and let them both know what was happening. Um, or if if the you know traps had been triggered or whatever it was, so there was kind of these real time updates between the DMs on these tables. It was all in this big community hall, um, and our group was the one who made it into the centre first. Um, so again, you know, you talk about competitive play. You know, I guess speed would be one metric to measure uh, success by, right? Is what yeah. we got there first. That's one. That's one way to measure it. And then there was one giant boss, and every group was able to um, contribute towards defeating this, I think it was a dragon, contribute towards defeating this big boss at the end through their own means. You know, I think they had to be able to go and uh, find some broken artifacts that were laying around this mega dungeon or something. We all had these kind of separate goals that were all interlinked together. So all these tables, we're playing our own games with our own groups of players, but we were all existing in the same little kind of instanced world and we're all kind of going towards the same goal. Uh, and then funnily enough, like you said, it's hard to kill players in d and I remember I was playing a barbarian and I was just trying to get this guy killed through any means necessary. I was just throwing him into like certain death uh, whenever I could because I, I, I just thought it'd be funny. I had a backup character ready to go. It's a one shot. Why not, right? So, you know, there'd, there'd be a, a crowd of, I don't know, goblins or whatever we were fighting coming down the corridor and I'd just throw my barbarian at them and just try and... Uh, try and give him a glorious death and he kept winning and I was actually actively trying to kill him and then uh, the last um, boss fight you know we're going through the rounds of initiative and uh, my barbarian ends up um, going down because he was kind of taking all the damage at the front and then uh, we were rolling on his death saves and stuff and it basically come down to the final death save I made it stood back up and then rolled a crit on my attack and like finished off the boss in like one one move and that was like the end of the whole thing it was it was amazing i was running around standing up screaming it was great um but you know that as an experience then you get to go off and go and sit with the other tables and find out something about that mega dungeon that you weren't familiar with from your playthrough but you're like oh you guys were over there doing that thing well we were here carrying this thing around looking for somewhere to put it or whatever it might be so um, they, I mean, obviously that day was kind of declared a success because we were all smiling, which is really the mo- the only metric that you need for is it good or not. Um, but in terms of the competitive element to it, there was that kind of, you know, well, who got this bit of loot that was hidden in this place? Who defeated this kind of uh, mini boss that was hiding in this dungeon waiting for someone to come and kill him? Or whatever it was. There was all these little things that the, the organisers had put in. It was a really good day, man. I, I kind of wish there was more stuff like that going on, to be fair, because it was a lot of fun. Um, but there's lots of... My point is, there's lots of metrics for how you could measure success in a, in a thing like that, even though we weren't directly competing against each other, because we were all, if you like, the adventurers going into the dungeon, if you like. Um, it was still... You, you still could, if you chose to, judge it table versus table. You know, there's a lot of different ways. I think because role-playing games are so broad the competition element can be equally as broad. I think um, what what this makes me realize as well is I think the longevity and success of some of the well-known campaign um, uh, modules or series, especially, you know, we always talk about the enemy within for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which has been, you know, reimagined. Um, I think part of the enjoyment there is to speak to other players who have played that same scenario through 
and to be like oh you know when you when you get to the troll like how did you guys like do that or you know when it when it comes to you know getting into the prison how did you guys do that you know and um i think that's what's really fun and, and especially when um when dungeon punks brought out judas halo i was like really excited after i'd run it to speak to other people who'd run it and played it to go like oh well what did you do with this bit and what did you do with that bit and I think being able to share that experience of having gone through the same story as a player or as a GM or whatever is is really cool and there's something nice about that and and I almost wish in a way that something like Try by Dice would be if all the GMs were given an adventure at the start of the day given out this this rough adventure guideline here is you know here is the what you to, are to run today in a sealed envelope no one's ever seen it before and then you run it and then everybody at lunchtime or afterwards can be like, oh, you know, like you can reminisce about the same adventure, even though they weren't in it with each other, <laughs> which is which I think is really fun. Um, and obviously you can you can tell the other players about what happened in your game. And that's that's just as much fun, too. But I think in terms of uh, if you're going to, again, in brackets, put a competitive element into this, I think one of the ways that you could create that um, that that level is to give all the DMs the same adventure, right? I mean, that, that I think, would be fair. Yeah, well, it depends who's competing. You know, Troll by Dice, is a, as it stands, is a kind of iron GM tournament, isn't it? It's about yeah. who's the best GM. But if, if you could turn it around and say, right, well, the DMs are um, kind of facilitating this for the players, so then it becomes more about what the players are doing and the, the, the focus is more kind of, in, for, the, for that element, the focus is on the players rather than the focus being on the GM being scored at the end of the day with a scorecard. It would more be about, you know, the story and the player's experience of it, and the, the GM is there to facilitate that. So I think it would be a, a different angle. But that sounds wicked, man. I hope the Dungeon Punks are taking notes. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. You could you could still score the GM um, from running that adventure, how well they've run it, you know, how how well they present the NPCs, you know, and... and and obviously you would get a bare bones you would have to flesh it out yourself and stuff but um but yeah because that to go back to what we said before i think there are definitely some gms who may turn up you know like yourself at trial by dice and have nothing planned although as you quite rightly said we all have our little bags of um bags of tricks up our sleeves whether it's like favorite npcs or monsters or like you know all these anything like that you know locations and stuff that's great because that's part of your gm's arsenal you know and you can reskin them for any game but um i think there are definitely some gms who will turn up having spent a long time um planning the adventure and i think it's really hard to judge those two gms side by side with any sort of um, categories, really, it can be really difficult. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's a really hard thing to put into practice. I love the idea. Um, and, you know, we're talking about the competitive element of it, and there's probably guys at Dungeon Punks going, oh, you know, you're focusing on the, the, the competitive word, and, you know, you shouldn't be. It's not about that. And, well, sorry, guys. I mean, it is. You made it a comp- You said competition. <laughs> that, that's why we're talking about it being a competition. Um, we have already said how much fun it's going to be and how great you guys are. So don't worry about that. But you have made it a competition. And then that opens the door for us to discuss what competition really means. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's scorecards. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, some people will be taking that a lot more seriously than other people, especially the GMs. There'll be some GMs there who want to win because that's what some people are like. Um, and there'll be some who don't care. And that's great, too. Um, but the very the very fact that you say it's a competition means that people, I don't know, maybe is it a bad thing? Because there are going to be some people who come out of that who who feel that they haven't done well. Do you think there's a danger there? Well, you know, I 
as someone who has not yet won one of these things, but plays it, but runs every time, I don't ever finish and feeling like, ah, oh, you know, I'm good. I didn't win that one. I don't feel that way because I'm not going there to to try and I'm not going there with a competitive mindset. You know, it's nice to be scored on things and it's nice to do well for the players, but I'm not trying to be the best. I'm just kind of I'm going there to enjoy the experience. But I can't speak for the other GMs. I think some of them might go and think, well. I know exactly what points I've got to hit to get five out of five on all these things by these players on my scorecard. You know, I know that some GMs they bring props and they bring kind of um, maps and miniatures and stuff. And I don't, I don't, I've never ever been a maps and miniatures style GM. It doesn't matter if it's an improv game or a written game. I never really do that anyway. Um, So if if I get a group of players who really want minis and a map. And I could run the best game ever, but there's no props on the table. Maybe my players are going to be disappointed in that. Whereas the table next to me might have a bunch of props and stuff that the players weren't expecting to get and would have been fine without. But that's then increased their experience of the game or decreased it. There was infinite variables and to the way that you could approach this. I think the fact that they are able to make it directly competitive at all, I think, is uh, is a bit of an achievement because there's just there's just how, uh, endless ways to approach this kind of thing and you know different styles my style of game is different to a trial by dice compared to a game that i've run or, or written somewhere else so I've, i'm not even i wouldn't even say the same gm at trial really because it's all you know you've got an hour you're scrambling around you've got these keywords you've got to fit in but you i want to go and chat to Bordy, or i want to go and i want to go see what connor's up to over there but i've got to pay attention to what i'm doing you know this it's a whole different environment to actually your weekly sessions where you, you've written things and you've prepared story beats and you've prepared scenes that you want to go through and all this kind of thing. It's a, it's a, almost a different game, really. I think you make a really interesting point about style as well. And I think this is what makes it really difficult to judge GMs because, as we all know, gamers, like any group, are, are individuals. And we enjoy different styles of games, you know, with different paces and um, tones and... If I was running a game for a group that I knew particularly well, I would uh, run it very differently to if I was running a uh, game for absolute strangers. Uh, which I, before, yeah, which, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which, which, which I did at the first trial by dice. You know, I didn't know the guys that sat down with, and we ended up having a great time. I mean, part of that is my was my social ability as a human to read the room and to understand what those kind of guys sense of humor and sensibilities and stuff were and i could decide where to where to place those dials on the you know gore or your maturity scales and all that kind of stuff but i think at a tournament you have to rein yourself in um you have to almost be the the kind of tamest version of of your own dming style because you don't know these people and 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 i think this stands we've said this before when it gets into x cards and all this kind of stuff um and, and, you know, it'd be interesting to see if X cards go out at the table at Trial by Dice. I don't know. They certainly didn't last time, I don't think. I yeah, think maybe. I can't see them going out. But maybe no. Uh, and they probably would say, well, we don't need that because nobody should be upset. And it's like, oh, hang on, you don't know what's going to upset somebody, man. Do you know what I mean? Because the whole point of the X card is you might be upset by something that people didn't even realize you were going to be upset by. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not about, you know, discrimination and racism and prejudice or all these things, which are inherently wrong in any game, which is we don't need an X card for that. That's wrong. Leave. Goodbye done we're talking about um other situations where a player may be uncomfortable with what the gm is doing even though the g to a lot of us the gm hasn't really made a mistake because it's just a a a cross wires communication between two people who don't know each other um 
so in a tournament scenario, even though I don't like X cards, I think in the past we have said I can see their value. I can understand them as a protective tool for the players around the table, uh, especially when they don't know each other. So yeah. I, that's why it'd be interesting to see if, if the X cards to go, do go out because, I mean, Dungeon Punks, if nothing else, are a group of people who are really interested in making sure everybody's okay. And that's to their credit. Um, and, you know, you, yes, you can walk in the room and see what's everything's going on, but... I wonder whether an X card situation would be just that extra level of safety for players who may be with a GM that isn't running the game that they know it as or whatever, and you maybe hasn't been to a lot of games before. And uh, do you think that should fall on the tournament organizers? And and now I'm going to go into a wider question, not just trial by dice, but in general in tournaments. Do you think um, the institution of X card should be a tournament led decision, or should it be based on a um, GM by GM basis in their own decisions? Ooh, ooh. Well, I think you know the the easy the easy answer is there's infinite possibilities. I think the fact that it's D and D first of all means that we're probably less likely to see X cards than we would be at say World of Darkness event. I think that's a that's a given, right? Agreed. Um, I also think, in particular, for example, I'm thinking about the last trial by dice. There are children present. Some of them are playing. Yeah. Um. So. I think I said this before on an episode a while ago, but if I am running a game at a tournament for strangers, the idea is, I guess, that I'm not going to be doing anything that might require boundaries. You know, I'm not going to be trying to push any boundaries. I don't, I don't require safety tools because I intend for my game to be 100% safe anyway. Um, <clears throat> having said that, you know, you just said uh, the X card can be used for things that you might not have thought would trigger people or you might not assume would be something that was dangerous for example so there's no harm in having them at the table I've, i think if a tournament organizer kind of pushes those tools onto onto all games i'd be happy to take it on but i'd probably would be less inclined to kind of emphasize it like right okay this guy said i've got to have this on the table i didn't intend for it to be here but if anyone wants to use it go ahead we've, got, we've all got mm. x cards now you know Whereas if I sit down going, right, guys, this is going to be a dark horror game. I'm going to have some really serious adult themes going on. So I've made sure you've all got X cards and I want you to feel safe because who knows what's going to happen. It's a very different idea to me. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I'm going, okay, there's going to be goblins and we'll, we'll shoot bows and arrows at them. But the tournament organizer says I've got to have these X cards here, even though we all know what a fireball is. And, you know, I just, it's a different vibe completely. I think the fact that it's a D&D you know, you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, you're playing these fantasy games that don't tend to have these kind of themes in them. You can mm. you could play it straight for a long time, really, without ever needing to come close to an X card. You know, you can do whole campaigns that are quote unquote safe. Mm. I, I think uh, you make another um, an interesting point here about children being at the the Trial by Dice event. Um, and I actually, the last one, ended up on a table um, with a kid who was a great kid, he had great fun, and, you know, um, it re it made it for a real special day that he was in my group, and um, we all as players and the GM was really great at making sure that the kid was included and had a great time, and as it happened, the kid was really switched on anyway, so it was he was dead keen to get involved, but there was me and another guy, I forget his name, who hadn't met before, and he had a certain idea for a character, and, you know, I play a certain way, and we were both stopping ourselves being more you know kind of making more kind of um you know whether it's just rude jokes or you know actions or whatever that you might be that's that's absolutely fine in an adult um 
uh, scenario. But we really had to, you know, even just moderating your language. Um, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a massive swearer day to day, but it's it, I have to remember you know you obviously switch a certain part of your brain when kids are around to like moderate your language you know to just be yeah, a bit nicer certain topics that you might, yeah. might be less comfortable discussing absolutely yeah but just even just your your general usage of you know whatever you're going to say oh shit man whatever you don't know how old this kid is and whether he's not allowed to say shit in the house you know um mm-hmm. so it definitely impacted my experience at that game and the guy next to me who I think really wanting to play a certain way and wasn't able to because of that. Um, it's hard for me to say, I wouldn't go so far as to say that the kid ruined our experience because I don't think that's true. Yeah. But he definitely changed the tone from what it would be. Um, he definitely had a marked effect on how that game went and how we played the game. Um, and I think sometimes that can be hard as well because if you were placed... Uh, you know, at a table with people, and you know, not just a trial battle, any event where you are, you it might be a group of adults and then two 12 year olds sit down or two 11 year olds or whatever. That becomes a very different game by default. And it, yeah, it may not be the way that you normally play at home. And I think, you know, you just man up and, and play nice for a day, don't you? It's just, you know, you watch a PG rather than an 18 that day, and that's fine. Um, but I think that those also have a massive impact on, on how. GMs are looking at that game, and you're absolutely right. D and D is is kind of safe. Um, you know, it's a much safer game than, than a lot of it. It's not like we're all sitting down to play Cult Divinity Lost. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, at which point, you know, X cards, you know, should be in everybody's pockets. But it just made me wonder because of of I, I'm very familiar with Dungeon Punks' ethos of you know inclusivism and protection, and you know, I, I applaud them for these things continuously. And I just think that X cards really fits into that groove. I think what you're saying is, instead of using an X card, you should just put a kid at the table, and it's a it's a yeah. perfectly good alternative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that would do the trick. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So make sure there's one kid for every table, and then you never need safety tools again because they're a little living safety tool. It'll stop you from uh, saying anything you don't mean. Yeah. Okay. So what about? Um, what about metrics? What about measurements? What about defining success? If we're being competitive, then someone's got to win, right? So how do you win at something? I mean, not not necessarily, again, not necessarily in the case of um, this one gaming tournament, but just generally, if you're playing wider um, competitive games, how do you measure something like that? Um, yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? I think you have to look at it from two point of views. Are we judging the player's success or are we judging the GM success? If we're judging the player's success, then I think we have to... D&D has an inbuilt system of success called experience points. So it's really easy for us just to say which player or group of players earned the most experience points during that game would be the winner. The problem we encounter with that is the uh, quite amorphous way in which gms can award experience points (laughs) um you are going to have gms who are much more free with their you know role-playing rewards or whatever and you would almost have to just say you know you get your xp for defeating creatures you get your xps for magic items and you get your xp for hitting certain story points or whatever you know if you rescue the princess from the tower that's worth 500 experience points if you manage to you know um quash the rebellion in the village then that's worth 500 experience points and there are various things available in the scenario that players as a group can achieve or not achieve in order to score those points 
Um, and then we get back to this old idea of, you know, everybody in the, in the room is playing the same module. So then we can judge one group's success against another by how many monsters they killed, how much treasure they got, which, which really are the essence of D&D's experience point system. And I don't think it's too radical to, to say out loud now that I really think D&D will change that experience point system moving forward. I think we're already seeing their they're um they're reticent to just give out xp for killing creatures i think we've already changed because that's what it used to be you know you kill the troll it's worth 750 xp whatever it happens to be um i think dnd wants to move away from there because of how they are want to judge success in the game and i think they want to move into a much friendlier much more um less combat orientated success system I think is what D&D is already moving into. And I think when we see the new version of D&D, which I think is due next year, the year after, whatever it is, with um, D&D 5th revised or D&D 6th, whatever we want to call it, I think we'll see a marked difference in in how GMs are um, suggested to, to handle experience points rewards. I think that speaks to the, to the, the players and the, the player group and the fan base, really, doesn't it? They're, they're, yeah. they're not making any decisions in isolation. They're making these no, decisions no. based off... I'm, what I'm assuming is plenty of feedback. Yeah, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is in a great place because the player base is so huge, the demographic is so wide, it's being played in multiple countries by different age groups. And I think, you know, we live in a world where feedback can be instantaneous. Um, so yeah, they are definitely responding to the wants and needs of the demographic as a whole. But that demographic has changed over time. I mean, I, I always say these things, but we live in this post-Big Bang, you know, post-Avengers movie landscape where... People view D&D very differently to how they did 10, 15 years ago. And I think D&D attracts and maintains a, a player base that is very different than it was when I started playing D&D, for instance. Or even, you know, when I was running a game store and people were playing 3.5 and Pathfinder, it's a very different group of people who are now engaging in the hobby. Um, and I say much wider. And it's really interesting. I want to talk about um, The Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which is a D&D release that, that came out last month but and i'll talk about it deeper later but it's relevant at this point because we're talking about experience there's there's an element in that adventure as it's written where you don't even give out experience points you just at certain points in the adventure you allow the characters to level up so you're taking that experience point system away entirely which is which is really interesting yeah i've always kind of been inclined to do that um, I refer to it as kind of milestone leveling up, you know, or whatever it's called. I've always kind of enjoyed that because it, in a way, it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. You know, the players aren't worried about then they're not going to be able to hit to hit their targets for getting a new skill or whatever. It kind of allows players, in a way, to sit back and enjoy the story and get involved in the story a bit more because they all know once they hit the next story beat, they're going to be rewarded the same. So. Even from the beginning, uh, my style has always been less about points based on killing and, and XP for um, various kind of micro activities, if you like, and more that kind of style of, all right, guys, we, we all defeated the bad guy, or we all discovered that this is actually the next lead in the quest, or we've all finished off the episode, or, or even it's 10 o'clock and I'm tired and we're done for the night. You know, it doesn't have to be an in-game milestone. It could be a meta plot milestone as well. But now is the time you all get given the same thing. I don't know, man. That's always kind of sat right with me. Yeah, and, and that's that's a, a, certainly a really good way to do it. And um, there are 
games that promote that that style of leveling up many many games i mean uh, you know i'm a big supporter of the osprey line and um there are several titles in that range that suggest that you level up just based on the number of sessions you played and, and that is as simple as that so oh, you level up straight away after one session uh, and after another two sessions you go to level three after another four you go to level four whatever it happens to be and there's a nice progression everybody um moves up that way I do want to tell a bit of a, a, a story about um, a GM that really influenced my idea of handing out experience points. And this is in World of Darkness more than, um, more than D&D. Um, but I used to have a GM when I was first getting into World of Darkness, um, you know, back in the 90s. And uh, he would, after a session, and we play games very frequently, you know, every week, if not twice a week or whatever. And he would have a five experience point system. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm remembering it kind of hazy memories now, but it, it basically worked like you had, there were five XP up for grabs at the end of each session by a player. So you would sit when the, when the session was ended, and I think you got one for turning up, I think. Uh, so it was one XP automatic. Um, then you got, like, uh, an experience point if you played your character well. Um, so if you stuck to your nature and demeanors or whatever, you played your character well, you got an XP point. And then the others were like question based. So I think he would he would go around the room and say like, "Tell me something your character has learned about themselves in this session," and then you would get a point for that. And then you'd be like, "Tell me something your character has learned about the world because of this session," and you would get a point for that. And then there was another point for something else. I can't remember what it was. But and so there were five points up for grabs. But you had to you were still role playing and flexing those creative muscles when. And you would be thinking about this through the session as well. You'd be thinking, oh, shit, that is definitely something I've learned about the world. You know, uh, werewolves are susceptible to silver. I've learned that. Or, you know, the sabbat are um, just the dark mirror of the Camarilla. All of these things which you could pick up from the game about the world and about yourself, I think was just a really interesting way to hand out experience points because you could say anything. There was no real wrong, right or wrong answer, but it forced you to kind of think about the world advancing and your character advancing at the same time, which is a really great narrative way of doing it. That's wicked. You've still got to justify your reasons for getting the experience. Yeah, I really like that, man. That's, that's such a good way of doing it. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we've moved on and and, and I've got, you know, older and, and maybe wiser, who knows, but in terms of the, how to treat experience points, when you've got the right players, it's really easy just to, in between stories, go, right, what, what do you think you should have? You know, what do you think... Um, do you think uh, and for the player to go right well I've been spending a lot of time sword training can I put my melee up yeah of course you can let's say should we say level three or no let's do level four yeah and then chat about it and whatever seems sensible for the players to get to just makes sense you know in 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 the narrative term and I think that when you really trust your players and the players trust the GM then you can get to this point where the players should be as powerful mechanically as as the player wants them to be because that's that's where the fun is had, you know. I don't. I really want to be able to do. I don't know. Auspex five, but I don't have the points for it. Tell me why you want to do Auspex five. Oh, because it's it's really pertinent to my character idea. Right. Well, let's let's do it. Let's just let's put the points in there and and have at it and go play. Because that's what you're doing it for, isn't it? And I think maybe that's why to bring this full circle. I think that's maybe why D and D modern D and D is so rewarding to low level players. Because they don't want to put new players off with that, what used to be the grind at the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. which I'm probably aware exists now in, in World of Warcraft and all that kind of shit. You know, you get that button hammering thing where you've just got to do your repetitive tasks to get up to a certain point. There was that grind in D&D where you started with very few hit points. You had to kill a lot of monsters and grind your way through a few levels before you started getting the good shit. So, and, and I think D&D realized that this was a, an entry barrier to a lot of people. Oh, yeah. 
who yeah. want to sit down with the first level player characters and kick ass. And that's why they're much more like superheroes now, um, above and beyond the, the average you know, man, woman or demi-human in that particular environment. The player characters already at level one are standing head and shoulders above the rest of the populace, which is one way to do it. Um, you know, I like that start low, you know, rags to riches idea. I, I like that, that level. But, you know, some people just want to get stuck straight in, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you can you can use a rags to riches system, if you like, and then just start with a higher level. There are lots of different ways of doing it. Yeah. It depends on what you players are after, for sure. But, um, yeah, I think I think it lends itself well to being more accessible um, for new players. I know what you're saying. You know, you want to, you, if you want, you want to play a wizard, you don't want to just be a weakling who has got to spend years learning his first spell. You want to be able, be able to, within the first hour or two, have cast a few sick spells and have set a goblin on fire or something cool. You know, you yeah. want that kind of instant feedback, don't you? That's, that's what society is these days. It's about getting stuff faster and better and quicker. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, so I get that, you know, and, and, there are elements of the whole kind of grind set, if you like, that don't particularly appeal. So I understand that. But I think, again, it's about what does the GM want? There's a balance to be had between uh, work and reward. And I think the rewards are always more meaningful if the players have put the work in to get them. Um, there are lots of examples of this, but since we're talking about XP, I'm going to bring it back around to one of my all-time favorite systems, Zasir Kala. Uh, I'm sure I've mentioned this on a previous episode or maybe just in conversation or, or whatever, but the XP system in Zasir Kala, uh, one, of the, one of the greatest mechanics um, within that is you will uh, level up a particular skill if you succeed at that skill. So say you're trying to climb up a mountain and you roll a critical success or something, then you gain XP in mountain climbing and you become a, mount- a mountaineer. And now you you could have climbed anything before, but it was a mountain you were climbing and you succeeded at. So now you're a mountaineer and now you can tackle crevasses and mountain cracks and fractures and different geologies because you have literally gained the experience of that in real time. And the dice made sure that you succeeded at that. And then you, you advanced through the character action that you were taking at that moment. And you can watch your character's XP come onto the player, uh, come onto the character sheet and you can watch your skills advance as you're playing the game. I think it's such a brilliant way of, of using XP. And, and it's partly based on the dice, which I like as well. So it, just like real skill, it is partly luck-based. And you it does push you to make these rolls because if, if there's a chance of getting that crit, then you know you're going to be able to level up that skill. And equally, if you fail at something, it still rewards you with XP because failure is still a lesson, right? So you can still fail at a task. And I think you get given like general XP to spend, or I forget what the mechanic is, but having the XP tied directly into the skills and the, the checks that you're making is a really kind of direct feedback loop that when the players can feel that as their characters, they can feel that it has this direct impact on the XP based on what actions they're taking. It really grounds the game in, in the world and it really gives the players this sense of what they're doing matters. And I've not come across a feeling like that with any other game before or since. So for Zasikada, I really do rate that. Yeah, there's... Um... In a very similar fashion, there's the old BRP or basic role-playing system, which was used for RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, Stormbringer, etc. Um, has a system where when you use a skill in the game, you check a box. So you tick the little box. And then any skill you've used during the session, at the end of the session, you make a skill roll. 
And if you fail that skill roll, it increases by a set number of percentages, like 5% Brilliant. or whatever. And Brilliant. obviously that becomes harder and harder the better you get to continue yeah. to improve. But you can only improve in the skills you've used during the session. So like you say, it's real time, it's real feedback. Um, you know, if you fought a lot in that session, you've used your shield and your sword or whatever, those are the skills which are going to increase. If you haven't done any tracking, you're not going to get better at tracking. So, and, and it's a really, it's a really elegant way of controlling. It's another, it's another bit of bootkeeping to do through the game. Of course, it is. Um, but yeah, in terms of what you exactly said there, that feedback loop that you get from your experiences in the game versus how your character progresses makes perfect sense. Yeah, and it, it really ties everything together, and it, you don't feel as kind of separated. I know a lot of the times. I know, particularly, I guess, a downside of this kind of milestone leveling up that we were discussing, let's take D&D as an example, is I could play a character for X amount of time, hit X amount of milestones, and then it's like, actually, you know what? I want to pick this random cool thing because it looks right. I've got the XP to spend on it. But then as a GM, I could say, well, have you, has your character have any experience in this? Has he ever done it before? It's like, no, but it's in the book and it looks sick and I want to mm. do it. It's like, okay, right, but... Does it serve the story? You know, what has your character really worked to deserve this, or are you just spending the skills to get it because you want to be cool? Both, you know, neither's wrong. Both are fine. But again, it's about the type of game you want to play, and having those character actions tied into the character abilities, I think, just gives it that extra level that you don't get with milestone progression. I, I totally agree. Um, and you know, especially with Dungeons and Dragons, I think you're right, and that's what makes it more of a game rather than a than a real narrative system yeah you can yeah. just when you when you hit a certain level and the the progression chart says that you get a new power and you pick from a couple of powers it's like hang on where's this power come from who's granted you this power who's taught you this power like yeah and there's no real discussion about what's gone on in the campaign world but neither neither does there need to be for D and I just i don't think they that most groups don't think about it like that they just think oh well that that just happens i can now do this like I couldn't yeah, before, so and now, yeah, and now I can. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's where a lot of kind of post D and D games, you know, whether it's Dungeon Crawl Classics or, or kind of even Lamentations or whatever, takes this idea that well, we don't really think too much about why the mechanics are the way they are because we're just playing a game, and there's that, there's that kind of disconnect from the, that super narrative element of it, which is baked into the system, and I think D and D unfortunately has that. And they've tried to get around that in, in various different ways. But I think at its core, D&D is a system which just, as we've just said, just rewards you with new powers at certain points, seemingly ambiguously. But yeah. that's just the way it is, you know? Yeah, it just exists for you to go into and use and whatever else. You know, yeah. that's fine. It's, yeah. it's cool to flick open the player's handbook and look in skills and stuff and pick the ones that are cool. You know, I like doing that as well, but mm. it just depends on the game you want to run, really. I'm... I'm uh, glad that you mentioned lamentations because that's something that i wanted to bring up since this discussion seems to have turned towards xp systems uh and the idea of competitive play you know lamentations of the flame princess the experience system is geared around uh wealth right mm. it's about you know you, you get xp based on how much treasure you get and that's the direct uh link of xp which i think is you know that that's gonna then turn the game its own way and, and create its own style of play if that's what the uh, the GM decides to do. But how sick would it be to do a 
like a like a tournament, like a trial by dice style thing, where the only XP you get and the only measure of success is just how much wealth you can accrue over time, and you just let all the players loose into a city and you say who can get the richest in the next few hours and just see what mad shit they come up with, and lit- literally measure it based on wealth and nothing else. I just think that would be hilarious. I think I think that would be great if you, as the tournament organizer, created I don't know a town, a valley, a situation, or a small a small area where you go like right in the mines there is X amount of gold coins in the village there is x amount that can be had in the inn there's this much there are monsters here who have this and like lay out so say there might be a million gold pieces up for grabs in this in this one valley in all different places that can be defeated by different ways and means but who can grab the 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 most of that million gold crowns do you know what i mean yeah that would be fun because then there's a direct measure of success isn't there you know like do you go, you know, do you spend that time breaking into the, you know, the, the Dwarven Cemetery and able to kind of get the Dwarven plate mail that can be sold for like, you know, 100,000 gold coins? Or do you spend your time killing peasants in the village who have all got like two gold pieces on them each? But if you kill 200 of them, then, you know, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or do you barter their money off them or whatever? Like anything, whatever, if you end up with the gold in your pocket at the end of the scenario that's worth an XP, I love that. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, yeah. that would be so much fun. Fuck me, I want to do that be. now. Yeah, so, right, right, right. Yeah, I think it would require a few forward planning, but yeah, that that would be great because otherwise you have a DM who just goes, "Oh yeah, this dragon is sitting on you know a million gold coins," and the other DM is like, "Oh, this dragon has nothing. He collects the bones of his enemies, which are worth nothing." So, and he, yeah, there's got to be a standard across there. But again, you know, to drag this back to original D and D, what you had was a very codified, laid out system of rewards for various creatures so all creatures had a treasure type and their treasure type was rolled randomly on a table normally the dm would do this either behind his screen or in front of the players when you defeated said creature you would go to the table of its particular treasure type you would throw a d100 and go right it has x amount of this oh it's got a magic item then you go to the magic item table and see what it had and then all those magic items would have an experience point value and a gold crown value so there was this kind of semi-random way of you know if you defeated a monster even the players were on the edge of their seats seeing what treasure they would get and it was controlled tightly but then there was also this random element which i think is 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 pretty cool still yeah you've got to have a bit of both you know there are dice involved there's some element of randomness to be expected i think in any game because of that i think i think i mean there are there are some games where really the experience is an afterthought because you just especially in the modern world i think where a lot of us play one shots or short campaigns we don't play the same characters in games for long periods of time uh, you know some people are lucky enough to do so um but on the whole i think we chop and change our games and characters and that quite often so experience points we don't spend a lot of time leveling up and stuff like that um but i think it's an important part of any game because it's not to be overlooked because i think players want to see advancement in their characters and i think that's part of what appeals on, on a baser level like to, to most players I'm, I'm nodding my head as you're saying this because it's one of the first things that i look for if i buy a new game system i want to go and look at the character advancement with uh, at a glance the rules for character advancement tell me how much longevity i'm going to get out of this game mm. Um, I'm thinking about when I first opened up Troika. Mm. Beautiful book, beautiful presentation, love the artwork, love the style, very witty, got lots of good things to say about it. If you go and look at the section for character advancement, it's like half a page of nothing, really. There's, you know, 
um, increase your numbers on your skills when you level up and that's it. Okay, well that instantly tells me that there's no point in me running a long-term campaign of Troika because yeah. all my players are going to do is get higher numbers on their skills. There's no real long-term benefits to keeping the same characters. It's designed for a one-shot. So mm. again, and it might be a very fun one-shot, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think the the sections for character advancement in games is of some of the uh some of the best parts of, of any kind of game engine really i do want to very briefly i know you mentioned osprey publishing earlier mate i got myself a copy of righteous blood ruthless blades and flicked through it what a fucking cool game yeah man. Man. I, very oh, cool oh mate i know we covered on the previous episode so guys go back and uh, check out our wujar role-playing episode where we covered that game but I was looking through it, man. The skills and just the mechanics. Ah, oh, what a game! I really, I really do want to try and get a game of that going at some point. That's so cool. Ruthless Blades is one of those things which which proves and supports a, a statement and a belief that I've had for a long time that games that are the most successful have their mechanics that are created from scratch to suit the very style, nature, and tone of the game that they're meant Absolutely. to support. And it, it's one of these things where you kind of just take an engine and, you know, everything has to be powered by the apocalypse or use the fate system or whatever it happens to be. It's like if something has been designed from the ground up to mechanically feel the way it's meant to, uh, Ruthless Blades is a classic example of that. It's so stylish. It's so slick. It, it's very clever game. Very well written. Amazing. You you want the mechanics to line up perfectly yeah. with the story and what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, oh, yeah, just brilliant. It's like one of my favorite books to just open and read. You know, it's just a treat to, to read through. There's so much cool stuff in there and the skills and the sort of characters you can build and mm. everything. Like, so, you know, that that would be a game. I'll be very excited to be moving through a world and I'll be thinking about the XP I can get or the leveling up I can do because I, I've got in my head, oh, I really want to get this next skill. I really want to be able to do mm. this thing. You know, you can, like, one of the skills is, like, you can, um, you can uh, basically teleport around a room and just leave a puff of smoke behind you and it's like as long as no one's looking at you directly you can move around and if someone's looking at you then you can't but if they as soon as they turn their back you can just go and just disappear oh what that's so cool yeah yeah oh man yeah there's, there's a lot to be admired in that book for sure actually we're um at the time of recording this episode we're only a couple of weeks away from the new osprey release so I'll be right on that on the release date we've got the uh, heirs of the templars which is due out on the 22nd of october um so i'll definitely be picking that up when when that comes out is that a new standalone or an expansion for something? no that's a that's a new game yeah that's a it, it, funnily enough the, there's only been uh all of the osprey rpg titles have been standalone apart from um the fall of the children of bronze which is the jackals expansion so jackals is the only game that has um spawned a, a second book the rest of them are all are all standalone and and then this comes another a, a templar based uh, game which I'm sure will be full of interesting, you know, 13th, 14th century um, occult, religious, cool stuff. So look That's forward to Bangor that. Street, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, if, if there's one thing I want, it's a complete collection of the Osprey RPGs. Yeah, I mean, I, I reached the point where you know I picked up the first couple, and now I'm I'm in a, a situation where I'm just getting them as soon as they come out in order to try keep on top of it. And what I do love about it um, is that they're priced so well. And yeah, they're very, they they're very friendly to the buyer and they're very great quality. I think I've said this before, but I'll say it briefly again, you know, because of Osprey's um, position in the market and it's, and how kind of 
solid they are as a company they can afford just to go ahead and print a really beautiful book and just put it on the shelf um and and for people to get it and, and i really applaud them for that because i'm i'm the first one to kind of knock kickstarters and, and big companies using kickstarter when they don't need to um osprey are really doing everything that i admire by just putting the faith behind the writers and the content and just producing a wonderful book at a really good retail price um that that is just that also has really good content you know um and i think they are just one of the real trailblazers in the in the rpg industry over the last couple of years i just really admire what they're doing yeah yeah you know yeah that's it as well isn't it uh, on top of everything else it's also that they're making good games yeah 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 so yeah. As, as well as the rest of it and the production value and everything else and the good writing they are actually uh mechanically sound and and fun to play yeah. so it's yeah yeah they're, they're onto a winner whatever they're doing so yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're getting a bit off topic, but we could do a whole episode about the Osprey stuff, couldn't we? Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, and, and no doubt I'll mention it. As soon as probably next episode um, or, or whenever it happens to be, when that that new book drops, I'll, I'll definitely bring that onto the show and talk about it. Yeah, do us a, um, a double feature with four of the Children's of Bronze as well, because. Uh, All right. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure whether we talked about that on the show, but maybe not. Yeah. That's that's a, that's a good one. Uh, the list is endless, isn't it? The yeah. list is endless. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. You got anything else to say about um, competitive gaming? No, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, yeah, so I, I think to to say anything else would probably just be going over all ground. And uh, you know, I, I think it is worth putting at the end that I think role playing is all about um, making sure that everybody around the table is having a good time. Um, so, and that works two ways. You know, we've done these how to be a better player episodes, how to be a better GM episodes. You know, if you're a GM you know, look to your players' needs and wants. If you're a player, look to your GM's needs and wants and the other players. You know, the responsibility falls on everybody's shoulders. A group is only as strong as its weakest member. Um, so, you know, help the GM, you know, especially you don't know how many games they've run or, you know, how well they know the scenario or whatever. And there's there's tons of ways to be a better player for uh, uh, alongside to support your other players and support your GM. So um, it's not us versus them. It's not GM versus player. It really should never be like that. It should be about getting the the most fun, but also for me, the best story out of it that you can, you know, that will stick in your mind that you can retell the events of that story to other players or other people. And they will go, oh man, that sounds so cool. And if, if that is what you've got out of any scenario, out of any game, then I think we can consider ourselves winning that is a brilliant segue to the next thing that I want to talk about. So um, thank you for rounding off that uh, discussion there. Um, I know we want to discuss Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Um, and probably in the context of this episode, it's probably a great uh, a great feature as well. So um, we'll talk about that at length shortly. But I do want to discuss a game that I have finished playing recently, um, especially with the kind of story elements in mind, you know, is it a game that has um, a strong narrative and has left everyone coming away feeling happy? Well, I hope so in this case. Um, I've just finished season one of a Cypher campaign that I was running and having now wrapped it up to a conclusion, I feel like I'm able to uh, discuss it at least briefly. Um, you know, I can kind of see the bigger picture of season one. So... Um, the Cypher system we discussed on previous episodes, uh, it's a very story-driven system. Um, it does use XP milestones, I think, to a certain extent, so it, XP tends to be doled out at the end of episodes. Um, you also have um, XP to use in 
the sessions as a kind of um, currency to buy story beats with. So the players can use their XP and spend their XP to influence the story in, in minor ways, which I think is, a, a really again, a really good way to make sure that XP remains involved and that makes sure that XP is at the front of players' minds. Um, so if you've just listened to the past hour and you know you like the idea of um, emphasizing XP in your games, then check out the Cypher system because I, I champion that, that rulebook. It's a really good, really good uh, game engine. This campaign that I've just finished <laughs> me and you, Jamie, one time we were strolling around and uh, doing our thought experiments as we do, trying to come up with different kinds of mad little uh, worlds or settings that we could put together that might make a fun um, game to run. And I think we come up with some pretty mad ones like, what was it, Underwater Wild West or... Uh... <laughs> Czarist Russian Cosmic Horror. Czarist Russian Cosmic Horror, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, trademark, by the way, if you see anyone yeah. doing Czarist Russian Cosmic Horror, that was definitely our idea. Yeah. Um, and one of the ones I've always wanted to do for a long, long time, I'm talking before I was even uh, a DM, is a fantasy whaling campaign. And there was one of the things that come up in that conversation. We were both laughing about how cool it would be. And we, I think we both had some ideas for it. And, you know, even at the time, I didn't really think that I'd ever get around to doing it. And then just opportunity arose and I had the time to put in. And I decided, you know what, man, actually, you know, what? I have space in my life at the moment where I can run a fantasy whaling adventure so I've, I've, I've got myself a group of players uh curated players who i love very much um and put a story together and off we went and we just wrapped up season one and it was bloody brilliant uh and i just wanted to share a little bit about it here a bit on the pod because um it was just an absolute blast to play first of all shouts out to my players uh if you have listened to realm of fire over on the format lrpg area the full metal rpg team if you like um you'll know the host over there rob uh, rob is one of my players a fantastic role player shout out also to the entity known only as cackling hex wraith uh, if you're an instagram guy you will uh, probably have come across cackling hex wraith's feed uh, there's a lot of great stuff on there i managed to get the entity involved uh, great player again so shout outs and uh, also a friend of the show, Jack Collister Brown, who is just a living legend in his own right. Um, do check out his Insta for cool art and stuff. So I, I wanted a group of players that I knew were going to be right for the game. You know, as we've said in the past, it depends on your players as well. So I knew the sort of game that I wanted to play. And then it was up to me to kind of curate that experience and make sure that the players were a good fit. Um, and that's one thing I know for a fact I succeeded on because they're all great players in their own right and we all brought something to the table you know our interests kind of aligned with this thing but in terms of the uh the the campaign i got to draw on a lot of influences um and things that i really like things that i am a fan of over the years i know we had some questions on the instagram about what sort of books and things can you draw from as inspiration for games and that kind of thing right you know you've done your instagram polls and stuff Mm. Um, and this was one of those campaigns where I had a huge pile of books on my desk that I'll just rifle through um, for inspiration. Notably among them, obviously, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, uh, one of my all-time favourite books. Um, I have a couple copies of it, so I made sure to use my, my well-leafed copy, and I left my Reader's Digest hardback where it belongs. Uh, I also used Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander. Um, I didn't have time to read all 20 books in the series, but... Um, 
if you haven't even read the first Master and Commander and you're into that kind of naval setting, I can't recommend that enough. Just the level of detail and the historical accuracy in those books is just is just incredible. So, you know, I got to, I got to use these um, these real important touchstones, at least for me culturally, and along with um, soundtracks that I put together. There's a lot of heavy metal. Uh, I'm a big Mastodon guy, and their 2004 album Leviathan was super influential for me back in the days when I'd, I'd be playing Need for Speed Underground 2 and listening to metal. So, um, you know, I, I was basically, it's kind of a culmination of a lot of my interests I got to put together into this campaign to run for this amazing group of players, and it was just a absolute resounding success. It was really story-based, so we really made sure that uh, what was coming first was the narrative, um, the cipher system has a inbuilt section in the character creation where it gives each character their own story arc. So as well as the main story that I was trying to write, I also had these three sub-stories, these three subplots. Each character had their own arc they were trying to resolve, and I managed to kind of use those to direct and ultimately influence where the main story was headed in order to, for the characters to gain their own resolutions. It was just brilliant, man. It was just such a... Um, such such good fun to run and uh the players had a blast i think it was a combination of the fact that we're playing in this mad setting that we'd all kind of come up with it was a uh post-apocalyptic fantasy water world where people subsisted on hunting the creatures that that lived on this kind of ocean planet that combined with the game engine this kind of emphasis on story how the xp is used within the sessions and after the sessions to drive the story forward and to advance the characters um, as well the way the cipher system works in terms of the dice rolls and in terms of the conflict resolution it all just come together it was absolutely just a, a really complete singularity of a game and i'm really happy that i got the chance and the time to put it together you know i made a world map uh, so as the characters would sail around the seas i would put little dotted lines based on where the ship had been going you know and uh, they'd sail to different locations that I'd, I'd prepared or semi-prepared, and and we were able to have this kind of uh, adventure on the high seas. Basically, it was just an absolutely wicked game. So uh, I just thought I just thought it'd be worth mentioning for you guys if you want to play in a fantasy uh, whaling water world campaign, then hit me up. I've got a lot of uh, resources and maps and stuff prepared for it. Um, I think it, it, at this point it might be worth um, just to highlight the cipher system a little bit better. Um, it it. You, well, you should tell us more about this. Um, what are ciphers in the game? Um, because obviously they're massively important. They're in the title of the game. What are ciphers and how did you um, utilize the concept of ciphers in this fantasy whirling game? Cool. Okay. Um, I, I suppose this could be another metric, metric for success, isn't it? Competitive-wise, I'm not sure. But So the cipher system is very broad. It can be any setting that you'd like. It could be superheroes. It could be historical fantasy sci-fi it's it's designed to be anything so don't picture a certain setting in your head just have any any kind just have a game i guess in your head but the the idea of a cipher is that it's a artifact or an item or a you know magic item or a, a thing or maybe it's intangible that a character can possess and when they use or activate the cipher it has a big effect that is a, a one-off so it could be it could be a handheld item that maybe is a teleporter or it could be like a mind reading device or it could be a type of grenade or a bomb any any or, or it could even be like a blessing from a god and when you activate the blessing it gives you luck you know it could be anything it's just a thing is a cipher and 
upon activating it, changes the course of the scene or the game or the, the combat round or the, the conflict that you're in or the obstacle or whatever. Um, the idea behind it in terms of the rule book is that the characters have more options for how to approach problems. You can give them these ciphers or they can find these ciphers or in some case go hunting for them or however you want to include them in, in the world. Obviously, I'll get to that in a second. Um, and once they have this, this array of ciphers, there is a limit to how many you can carry at once. They're able to approach problems in different ways. They're able to navigate obstacles in a way that maybe their character and their skills alone wouldn't allow. It gives them another angle to look at problems with. And once you use the cipher, it's then discarded completely. Maybe you get another one, maybe you don't have any for a bit. Maybe they're used as rewards by the GM. Um, it's, it's a kind of, it allows these cool moments to happen. You know, maybe one of them is just a, an EMP or a huge explosion, like a nuclear bomb. It's a cipher or something, you know, it's a one-off. You only get to use it once, but you, you have access to it and you can possess it and then you can go and activate it and then it's it will change the, the course of the story, you know. So there are lots of different ways that ciphers can be used. And I think the idea is to just kind of keep the game on its toes and to keep things rolling smoothly and not have things stagnate. If you've only got certain skills that you've using over and over again, you know, you get different ciphers that will help you through in ways that your skills wouldn't. Now, in terms of this campaign that I've just finished, I know we had the idea that, uh, what was it, you said um, ciphers could be called Jonas and they'd wash up in the bellies of the whales that you'd be, you'd be hunting at sea, right? Um, because it's a, uh, I did like a post-apocalyptic fantasy water world type thing. The idea is that you're on this ocean planet, but under the waters is this drowned civilization. And all these things are washing up from this future civilization up to the surface that are then picked off by the current humans or the current civilization that live on the surface of the water like pond scum. And you're kind of always scavenging the sea gives things to you and you it's just up to you how you use them so you know we had some things that were buried in the bodies of uh sea monsters we had um there was a particularly great scene where uh oh it was a whole episode actually really where the, the players had to um dive down to the uh the ocean floor and recover this kind of radioactive artifact and they had a big um diving suit that was really archaic and i had there loads of gauges and and meters in the diving suit that would read different things at different times to increase the tension in the scene and whatever else so that was really fun to do so there's lots of different ways that they could acquire these ciphers and then it was really up to them how they'd use them um one cipher i had was a like an anti-gravity thing and you it's like a handle basically and you attach the handle to anything you want and it makes that item completely ignore air resistance and gravity so you can just push it around as if it's in space and it will just float forever and obviously then you apply a lot of uh, inertia to that object and it'll keep moving at the same speed so you can use it as like a spear or a harpoon or throw something and it'll travel for eternity or whatever you wanted to do with it you know so you give basically you give these toys to the players and you let them use the toys however they want and i think that's part of the fun is that it's it's a kind of guaranteed one-off item that you can let them loose with and see see what happens with it you know yeah i've always found the 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 idea of ciphers as a as a kind of mechanical and narrative tool to be like amazing and because the cipher system is as you quite rightly say a 
uh, a kind of generic um, system. You can imagine ciphers in a superhero game being like um, special kit, you know, or in a fantasy game, they're magic weapons. In a, you know, a horror game, they could be, you know, cursed items. Like all of these, it can be anything, which is so amazing because it's just a wide variety of what ciphers can be. But I think it's, it's right that it's called the cipher system because I think they are the real kind of cornerstone of the game and what makes it really different. You know, Monty Cook's a genius, man. Oh, mate. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I still think it's one of the best things he's ever done and I'm a big fan of Planescape. But uh, this, uh, it's, it's so far been one of the best games I've ever written and ran. And I can, I can handle my heart to say that. It was a lot of fun. The players made it what it was, but I... You know the writing and stuff that I put into it. The cipher system really kind of enabled me to get the most out of it. So yeah, very grateful and very happy that I managed to round it off to a, as finale. I think for people who are listening um, and you know think the cipher system is is worth giving it a go, it is. Um, it doesn't come with a with a preset campaign world. There are books that you can buy to kind of add on to the the game. So if you're the kind of GM who wants a world, you know you want that work done ahead of time. I can definitely recommend Numenera, which was the, the first Cypher System game. So it came out before the generic Cypher System rulebook. And I think Numenera was really, as we just said before about Ruthless Blades, it's one of these things where the, the system and the game were written hand in hand. Um, Numenera, I don't, we're not going to get into it massively now, but it exists on Earth millions and millions of years in the future. And there has been the rise and fall of various civilizations over that time. And the things that are lying around from these civilizations are ciphers. So and that's what what makes Numenera really interesting. So for people who love this idea of these ciphers and want something a bit zany in a in a very Gene Wolf kind of um Jack Vance dying earth sort of way, then you could do a lot worse than than go and pick up Numenera. It's a brilliant book, it really is. I do recommend it. And if you're more of the gaming type as well, check out uh, the Planescape Torment spiritual sequel, which they released on uh, PC a few years ago which is just a, a great um, CRPG for you to run through. That's a lot of fun as well. And it uses the Cypher system, just like the tabletop version. Cool. Yeah, recommend. Anyway, it was a great campaign. I had a lot of fun. Um, I could I could talk you through the entire story in detail, but maybe that's something if you want to come and collar me at Trial by Dice next month and ask me about it, I'll be happy to uh, run you through. But yeah, just thank you to Rob from Realm of Fire. Thank you to um, JCB. Love you very much, bruv. Thank you to Kathleen Hexray for the three of you just made that game what it was and uh, really brought the whole thing to life. And I'm just—it was just a pleasure to have the time and the opportunity to put something like that together because it was a real epic. And you know, it's a rare thing to run a campaign start to finish. I think it was like 12 or 13 weeks, and we actually we actually pulled it off. Uh, it's an achievement in itself these days, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, play, playing anything for that long. I mean, you, you know, if you if you're in a group that's been playing, you know, week on week for a long time like that, then you know. Count yourself lucky, you know, you're doing it right, you know, it's great, um, especially in the modern world where people have a lot of stuff going on, um, it's great to be able to to play anything for that length of time, it's, it's really Absolutely. cool. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so one thing the cyber system does well is reward XP based on activities that aren't necessarily combat and fighting. With that in mind, would you like to run us through um, Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which we mentioned earlier on in the episode, which I think is gearing more and more towards that style of play am i right in saying it's kind of wizards of the coast's first foray into this um kind of um being being aware of this style of gameplay I d- okay so i think D have been moving in this direction for a while um i think you know in various supplements we've seen uh, a move towards um 
the idea that the adventures can be completed without combat is is kind of there in the background i think wild beyond the witchlight is the first book that really um wears this badge on its sleeve and that you know really kind of suggests at the beginning in writing that you could play through this entire thing without any combat um it, it might be hard um you'd have to have quick thinking players etc and um, but it's very possible and i think that's really interesting from an industry standpoint that not that that is implied but that that is stated i think that's very different um when I first picked up Wild Beyond the Witchlight, I'm I'm not the biggest fan of D&D's new incarnation, and I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of the books that have been coming out for the game. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say that first. You know, it's not my favorite game. So I am I was inclined to probably not enjoy this book when I picked it up. Um, however, there's much to be appreciated um, inside Wild Beyond the Witchlight. Um, there's some great ideas in here. Um, personally i don't like the way that it's presented and i'm going to get into telling you why please so um the the spoilers up ahead so if you um if you want to play while beyond the witchlight and you, you don't want any kind of spoilers uh, g- generic spoilers um then you might want to kind of switch off from this episode because i will be talking about the the kind of um uh, the adventure itself and the setup and stuff um this to me feels like the pcs should be playing uh, children. So this, to me, feels like this kind of... Um, kids on bikes. Yeah, thing. really right, does right. have that kids on bikes kind of feel about okay. it. Okay. Now, whether that is intentional or whether that is just um, kind of taken from a lot of what's going on in the gaming industry right now, I don't know. But it's fairy-based. So um, it's one of the, the first and major books in the new D&D line to really get into... Um, the D&D's um, version of, of fairy, so to speak. Um, it also has other connections to books that have previously existed, and I think this is really interesting to um, to see that D&D are tying some of their products together to create a wider kind of patchwork of things that link into each other. You might recognize NPCs or um, various events or places or whatever crop up in different books um that in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing it tends to lead into the idea that you might want to buy something else so that you can see its connection to another book which i can totally see as a marketing strategy um but the major uh, element um of wild beyond the witchlight is the witchlight carnival so the witchlight carnival itself is a traveling fair that moves around the multiverse and just pops onto different planes and just turns up and sets up as this kind of imagine if you will a, a, a fun theme park with all of the uh requisite rides and events and and things like that i mean yeah it's straight away okay. it's very losing whim- me it's very whimsical um yeah. it's very it, it really had the opportunity to be this kind of carnival um traveling freak show idea which would have been really interesting um yeah, give me some freaks, man. Where yeah, are the freaks at? yeah, but I mean, this this is really um, imagine a, a, a kind of kids' nursery idea of a a carnival with like you know, I, I mean, the the caravans themselves like come down on like butterfly wings and like you know change the environment and like put trees around it and you know that it's it's run by these two elves, you know. Um, it's straight away it gets into the idea that this is really 
it, it looks like it's played for laughs. It's cutesy. It's whimsical. Um, there's no real danger there in the carnival. It's just to be had. There's loads that you can do, um, but none of it is really, none of it's combat orientated or conflict orientated or anything like that. Um, the carnival allows the player characters to jump into this realm, um, this fairy realm of which the, the, the kind of main um, person who runs this realm is trapped. And the, the, the rest of the scenario really involves the characters moving around parts of this fairyland in order to free um, the, the leader of this realm from their imprisonment. Um, Hither, Thither and Yon are the three names of the uh, environments in which the, the characters will move around. And each one has a, a particular theme. There are lots of, you imagine, all the fairy stuff here. I mean, this is a mixture of like Labyrinth and kind of uh, Alice in Wonderland. And it's got all that kind of stuff in it. You know, there are cute displays of beast kittens and, you know, scarecrows with pumpkin heads and uh, all sorts of fun, interesting, cutesy stuff can be found in here i mean um you know there is in the carnival i think it's a centaur called cloppington um i mean yeah i mean this is really what this is really what we're getting into you know okay um yeah there's a lot going on here um but it's 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 so sweet it's so sickly sweet the entire book um that i I would struggle to understand how to run it. It feels like I should be running it for 10-year-olds. I mean, that's what it really feels. That's what it feels like it's directed towards. But then but then it's not um, because it's it's quite involved. The, you know, some of the interesting characters and locations have obviously been well thought out and are detailed. But the premise for the adventure itself, that you are just hired by this old warlock, he'll give you some stuff if you go and free... Uh, this person from the fairy realm is so thin on the ground. I mean, it, it's begging for characters just to go. Why should we do this? Right. I was I was going to ask about the hook. What's the what's the what's the in? The, there know? are two. There are two um, hooks that can be used. One is that as a child, you you lost something at the carnival, and now you return to the carnival in order to, in order to find the thing that was lost, um, which is a kind of cool fairy tale kind of in. And the other yeah, one is it. Right. And the other one is a really. It might as well be a man walks up to you in a tavern and gives you a treasure map. I mean, that is essentially what it is. Really lazy hook for for such a, a, a brand new and kind of mm. what could have been an interesting game. And it's almost as if D and D is saying, look, it doesn't matter why you're doing this mission, why you're doing this adventure, just crack on with it. And it, and. And that, in a way, is really interesting that D&D are then kind of borrowing from this Lamentations and Dungeon Crawl Classics idea of it doesn't matter why you're on this adventure. Um, the, just the adventure that matters. It matters to me. Um, and I've worked really hard at some of the D&D games that I've ran from the, the fifth edition to make the players care about the adventures that we're on. Because even at the beginning with, you know, um, Tyranny of Dragons and some other ones, it's really hard for those original hooks to get the player characters to care. I've had to do a lot of work and a lot of sessions before I've even ran the start of the adventure. And I feel like I would have to rework the hook in this massively if I was going to get player characters involved in it. Um, So from that point of view, it's it's a letdown um, story-wise. But then just everything you come across in this is just played played for cute giggles. Um, and, and it's hard because, as I've said, there are some interesting things in here. But it's, it's, it's the presentation. It's the idea that 
your characters are going to want to be nice to everybody and to treat everybody lovely and to be these like almost like innocent childish do-gooder heroes now i don't understand how a a group of you know chaotically minded uh, you know murder hobo npcs yeah yeah, would get through this book i just because it's not written for them um at all there's there's almost nothing in there to be done i mean you can trumps around the fairy realm just slaughtering things but you you won't get you know much enjoyment out of that afterwards and you certainly won't progress through the plot um so so yeah it's, it's just it's i find it interesting that D D have brought out this book and it really pushes the non-conflict cutesy super no x card needed agenda um, <laughs> we're calling it now yeah yeah like i just yeah, yeah. i think i think this is an indicator of where dungeons and dragons is going i really do think this is um and it's not just an indicator that of where dungeons and dragons is going i think it's an indicator of where the mainstream rpg industry is going and i and i use the word mainstream yeah. because i know there are lots of indie creators doing you know dark mature stuff you know whether it's Morkborg that's become very popular right now or you know mothership and all of these really cool games that are out there that certainly don't pull any punches and are you know horror or action or blood and gore mainstream seems to be going in this direction um and it's really super safe it's super nothing that there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with the the kind of um it's elements of diversity and inclusivism and everything are you know clap my hands at them and that's great but it's the way that it's done and the way that it's presented is very childish and i think it almost belittles the work that they're doing with being so clever uh, and and being so mindful of diversity and inclusivism that they have to turn it um almost into a joke and that's what i think's a shame right right i'm trying to think about Right, I've, you got me thinking now about, you know, we mentioned 5th uh, Revised or 6th Edition or whatever it might be. I'm certain that that's going to have some big changes to the character class builds and the character creation section at large. I'm sure in the new D&D book is just going to be uh, completely different because this has got me thinking about this witch-like carnival thing. You know how we've got some previous D&D expansions, like you come across, uh, what is it, Curse of Strahd, and, you know, the players can be... Um, transported to that realm and then they've got to fight their way out or Mm. you might have something where the players come across the environment and then they get stuck into the quest or whatever it is I'm trying to think about you have an existing player group let's say level 4 or level 6 or whatever it is of D&D adventurers who come across this witch-like carnival I, I can see even in character them taking it as a joke you know, you you come come to this carnival and right, who's who's in the adventuring party? Well, we've got a, a a thief. What does he do? He steals stuff. Okay, cool. We've got a sorcerer. What does he do? Well, he sources stuff. Okay, cool. We've got a fighter. What does a fighter do? Well, it's kind of in the name. I'm only really good at one thing, and that's that's fighting shit. That's what I'm called, fighter. So I'm gonna try and find stuff to kill here, right? You know, and you've got all these like sweet elves and butterfly caravans and stuff, and the fighter literally from the ground up is designed to only do the one thing that it can't do so i feel like the existing player group or adventuring party if you like even in D fifth encountering this would kind of stumble over it right we kind of trip trip on it yeah i think i think what you've hit on here is 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 a major issue that 
Dungeons and Dragons and Wizards of the Coast are going to have to carefully look at. Um, yeah. The fact that the character classes are, as you quite rightly said, at least two of them are geared towards doing two things that D&D seems to suggest you shouldn't be doing, fighting yes. and stealing. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the, the, you've got assassins and like all this kind of stuff. And yeah. um, I, I just don't, yeah, I don't get what group of player characters are going to in, enjoy this um, this kind of scenario because, yeah, there, there's nothing to be done in the carnival. I mean, there's nothing to be done. You can go right, on racing snails. Yeah. You can go on racing snails. You can, there is pages and pages of all of the cool little um, games that you can play inside the carnival. None of them mean anything. So it's like it's all side quests almost or mini games. Uh, just, yeah, tiny little mini games that you can play um, and just experience. And, and I mean, I can't imagine... Uh, sitting at a table running them i can't imagine enjoying them but then i think i think this isn't for me you know this isn't directed to me no um, you don't say no no but i mean it, even even for D D, this is this is a step in a really interesting direction does it have any um uh extra stuff for players to use has it got any more character classes and has it got any races yeah it's got a couple of races <laughs> okay <laughs> it, right. yeah well one is a pixie um love it love a pixie uh, yeah um and one is a uh hair and gone uh which I, I assume is meant to be pronounced here and gone um which is a a, a rabbit creature basically like a, a imagine oh, a buggy or hair style yeah oh, so that's really lazy sorry not a pixie a fairy so um you can be fairies which are literally you know small guys with butterfly style wings and uh, all that nonsense and they're, and they're that's hairy- sick though mate I, I love a fairy I love the idea of playing a fairy that's kind of cool you can do a lot with that mm. maybe maybe not in the witch light you know maybe you'd have to take it somewhere yeah. else but you know I'm thinking about Dremba Volo's Guide to Monsters that had some cool shit in it that book did man you had like crow people and all kinds of bonkers stuff. oh yeah I mean there's some Kenku in here you know there's some crow that's people it, and stuff it. in here yeah but, um, but it's just you know Diana Cloppington the centaur and you know, a, a tiefling fire breather entertains the crowd in the big top and just like absolute nonsense. Um, it, yeah, it's not it's not great stuff. Uh, and the Herringons just there. There's no like there's no real description of their society or, or how they're functioning or anything else. And I think D and D's in this danger now of just going. Here's a race. Feel free to use this now. Now this is an right. official race. Use this anywhere. So you've got people playing up for a turning up for Baldur's Gate. Um, fucking game and just go i'm gonna play a herring gun because it's in witch light and this is my these are my skills and i'm i'm a i'm a rabbit guy now and that's it right right right. so you know (laughs) guess the number of feathers on the basilisk and all this kind of stuff and it's just yeah it's oh and one of the things that i really hate in this actually is it introduces as as this massive duex machina in the game this eliwick tumblestrum is a, a a bard a i believe she's a gnome yeah gnome bard that turns up and basically helps the characters whenever they're in trouble. Basically breaks the game for them. So we'll like, turn, pushes them in the right... She's the one who originally gets them tickets for the carnival. She's the one that will turn up and like push them in the right direction, just as if by magic, just turn up and then defeat. And D&D have gone so far as to not give any stat block for her because she can't be fought and she can't be defeated. So there is, there is no way... Um, as it says, no stat block for Tumblestrom is necessary since she won't harm or hinder the characters and cannot be harmed by them. Now, I mean, that is just a sweeping statement that takes all control from the GM wow. and the players. Oh, this yeah. Tumblestrom, this gnome bard's doing my head in. Fighter says I'm going to cut her head off. You can't. 
Kill Jester. Why can't you? You just can't. That's it. Um, and to make things worse, um, people who play Magic Meal have already spotted this, Eliwick Tumblestrum is a planeswalker, which in Magic terms means one of their big character style things from one of their sets you know um she must have uh, magic the gathering magic the gathering yeah it. so um she is known as a planeswalker a fiercely independent and extremely powerful entity not to be trifled with um and she's basically this this huge plot device hammer that is just used to knock the 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 plot back onto the rails whenever you need to and the fact that it says she cannot be harmed by the players and she will not harm the players is to me that's just the removal of agency is is awful and that's what this book's full of this this real like you will not deviate from this this is this is what we're going to do here and there's no choice yeah i guess it's kind of insulting isn't it i guess yeah yeah um, but that also makes me wonder they need and they, they need an npc to keep the story on track because the story might get derailed by what by all the mini games that the, is in the same book you know i i think I think there's just there's they want you to go this is the mission you need to go and do just go and do it and and any time that you struggle with this we want you to succeed so we we have put this planeswalker into the game that if you get lost or um get off track or whatever i can just have her turn up and put you back on track almost like this kind of greek chorus style um device that's baked into the the adventure mm. to make sure that you will succeed uh, and it's just really odd and i'm thinking like well if she's this powerful that she can't be harmed and she's supporting the characters to go and free this individual, why doesn't she just go and do it? Yeah, she's going to do it. Yeah, man wears eagles, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah. Like, it's just... Well, I mean, we could get into that and there's a reason that that's let's not, not done. Let's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, there's, there's main reasons why you can't just fly the, the ring and over, you know, or a I'm sorry, mate. I'm but, sorry to bring that up. Yeah, I know it's a was, sensitive point yeah, for you. That, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. going to upset me. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of this, this D&D game, um, it... It's really, it's really brutally simplistic, and um, it really promotes an agenda that I see more and more in, in Dungeons and Dragons and other mainstream role playing games. And and it is interesting to think what massive changes we're going to see in the new edition um, with regards to conflict and combat and stuff like this. I mean, I, I've said you know many many months ago on the show we were talking about you know the idea of of X carding combat and stuff like this, and and people not wanting to play conflict um inside their role-playing games and you know i'm sure we'll talk about it more maybe when we've both read it but there's a, a new game out called wonder home um I, i'm interested in that yes. yeah it looks uh, pretty good it looks great but uh, the game is designed that it has no physical confrontation in it which is not wrong per se but it's designed that way so when you sit down to play you're not expecting it which i think is a much better way to do it whereas i think people playing dungeons and dragons are by their very nature because you're playing somebody who fights you've got a sword you the magic items are one of the things that are desirable in the game in order in order that you can do more damage and take more damage right i mean that is the the sole purpose a lot of, of a lot of the famous magic weapons and armor in D D is order to increase your combat effectiveness and i think D is really going to struggle to move away from that and yeah. to provide um sensible alternatives i think it almost wants to turn itself into something it isn't um and and this this book is the turning point i think for D D. and i think we'll look back in the future and see well while beyond the witch like that's where it changed that's where yeah. D became this new version of what we what we perceive it to be this very safe um non-combat oriented fun cutesy saturday morning cartoon thing 
um whereas it used to be dungeon bashing and, and killing monsters and getting xp because you've murdered them and and like i said before and then when we're talking about you know leveling up and stuff there's it's almost glossed over in this it's just like every time the pcs the, there are three different realms to explore as part of this this fairy world and each time you enter the gate into one you just level up of course you do yeah you just level up give the give the, just level up pick your new stuff and then you go on to the next one you level up and you level up so you can level up four times within the adventure done you know what i mean that and that and that's it so by the time you hit the end level boss or whatever you are the you are the correct level right right i'm yeah i'm really thinking now about how fundamental combat is to the earlier editions of D&D and just how big of a change they're going to make if this is the direction they're going in I could pull my player's handbook down now and open it to any page and there'd be something that they'd have to revise if they're trying to go for a, a kind of less combat-heavy alternative. You know what I mean? Yeah. Almost the entire of the player's handbook is is devoted to building a character that can kick ass in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to speak on a bigger point, I'm quite disappointed about this because I'll be honest, I, I did have... I was kind of cautiously optimistic for it. Maybe I voiced this on a previous episode. Um when I heard that, oh, and actually when you told me that D&D were doing a book that was specifically kind of trying to gear away from combat and was trying to have these alternative conflict resolutions, I was quite excited. I was, you know, I was wondering, you know, they've got a big team of writers, they've got a lot of production value behind it. What sort of thing are they going to come up with to get around the, this kind of central focus, particularly with D&D in mind, central focus of combat? Um, you know, for example, I've always wanted to play a game that is a, a set in some court, a game of political intrigue, yeah, or a game where you are, you know, corporate saboteurs. You know, there's there's so many adult ways or mature ways, if you like, to or grown up ways, I guess, to run a game that doesn't have any combat in it. You know, imagine a, imagine a game of um, you, you're a, a world leader and you you've got to manage your economy and stuff like that or you know that kind of resource management style or something a bit more down to earth where you may be uh intelligence gathering or there is there's loads of ways and loads of games and loads of different types of um stories that you can run that don't necessarily have combat in them and i was really excited to see their first kind of offering and they you know what what where are they going to set the bar what sort of style are they going to bring to the table where they're going to say look this is still us we're still wizards of the coast we're still D D. we've got all this rich history behind us here's what we have made for you that doesn't need combat i'm sure we could go back through the history of D D and take enough things out of there to come up with a game that doesn't have combat in it and it can still be kind of fundamentally dungeon and dragons if you like and i don't think this is it yeah i think i think D D um seem to model themselves on like three pillars of of adventuring um one is kind of combat one is exploration and one is social and you're absolutely right one of the things i would have suggested straight off the bat was to produce some sort of really complex political court guild type thing and i mean the the ravnica book's got a little bit of that in it um but it doesn't really push it far enough i think um was the ravnica was that eberron no, Ravnica is was a um, a set that existed for Magic the Gathering, and they turned it into the first full hardback setting that had ever gone from Magic into D anD. Um, oh, that passed me by. Yeah, that was. Um, it, it's it's a really interesting like big city with loads of different guilds in. So it's got this idea of you know guilds in fighting and political sort of stuff. Um, the book itself is is fairly interesting, but 
it it's hard to really enjoy it massively because wizards are basically just saying look here's our license from the magic the gathering we're just going to put it into our D and the fact that they put a planeswalker character from the magic the gathering game into this D book just like ruins it for me more than more than already it was but um yeah there's it, it's going to be interesting to see how dungeons and dragons pushes forward this idea of of non non non-combat yeah there's no other way to yeah, say it like call it? yeah yeah um because I, this they are definitely doing this so a bit of a a bit of a, a stumble at the start line i think yeah it's just so much work would need to be done for me to want to play this um that i, I might as well have written it from scratch you know um i would have to change the yeah. names of a lot of things and yeah. you know even i would have to come up with a better setup um even the idea of the carnival itself is never really explained about what what do people are people frightened of it or do they know it comes like it just turns up in the sky transforms the <laughs> landscape literally transforms the landscape sets up a river around itself puts up some trees like and then puts everything back when it disappears and it's like well terrifying yeah like is yeah, that, yeah. at what point uh, is the local kind of noble like charging this carnival to just this magic thing that's just turned up or is it but there's no discussion of it it's just accepted that yeah um every, all that everybody wants to go because it's happy it's like the fairs in town do you know what i mean amazing like it, it, it yeah apart from there's no discussion of how it works there's no discussion of how it interacts with the other the other things and it's just yeah there is no there's no background there's no suspension of, of, of reality with this it's just you just there's a lot that you just have to assume you just take at face value and move on right yeah and I, i'll get there is a certain amount of that always with this kind of thing but it's for them to not even address it you know and like the, the carnival doesn't even have like a dark secret there's no like there's no one's been kidnapped at the heart of it or nothing there's no there's no conspiracy to un, un, unravel very little i mean there's, there's oh. an element where there's there's these witches that that rule the fairy realms and they they are allowed to steal from people in the carnival, but only people who haven't bought tickets. So anyone who sneaks, <laughs> exactly right. So anyone who goes into the carnival, legit, buys a ticket and goes in is, is safe from these thieves. But anyone who doesn't buy a ticket, it's almost like D&D are going, well, you know, if you've got your passport, then you can't be hurt. But if anyone who like, ooh, sneaks into the carnival like a dirty, sneaky thief, then you can get, and you won't even get hurt. You'll just have something stolen from you. And the things oh that you can God. get stolen from you include like your fashion sense and like your singing voice and like all of these like weird things. Um, that again, just it's it's comical. It's very comical. Yeah, because you know you don't want to get your um, best axe stolen off your deer because it's, no. you've got it's got to be able to be something that anyone can have stolen. I guess. Yeah. Oh man, I mean the 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 the. Um, social implications of all that uh hurting my head i'm trying i've got like marxist theory flashing through my brain right now and i just don't even want to think about the, the implications of stealing only from people who haven't paid for a ticket and that kind of thing that's that's, that's um hurting my politics brain that is so mm. let's just let's move on from that quickly please because <laughs> i can feel myself exploding but i mean yeah i mean what a disappointment man i was really hoping that they would actually pull something unique out of the bag because it's a it's it's a good challenge to set yourself especially for a company of this size you know and now yeah. i feel like i'm i'm picturing you know i just saw the the cover on the video here that me and you were talking to each mm. other so I could, i've seen a bit of the cover in that but i'm picturing this book as a kind of like 
Dungeons and Dragons, and then in a subtitle underneath, it's like kids in like balloon fancy writing, or like Dungins and Dwangins, or something with like very much uh, so play block letters. You know, it's just yeah. it just seems like uh, uh, just a, just the wrong direction to have started down with this idea. There's just so many infinitely more interesting ways you could have gone with that. So I'm I'm going to register my disappointment with this one. Yeah, and like I say, I mean, there's there's. There's, so, there's some things to enjoy. I mean, as always, production quality is great. There's some great maps. There's some there's some in locations that, if they weren't so sickly sweet, would be interesting. Um, and f- there's really this is there's an annoying thing as well where it um it it introduces this storytelling um spider weirdly named the yarn spinner. Yeah, good oh one. good yeah, one, guys. Right, right. The book is full of these <laughs> these silly names. Um, Fuck's sake. But, uh, this spider is detailed in Domains of Delight, which is a Feywild supplement, which is available on the D&D Guild online. And it's like, oh, guys, come on. This, like, cross-promotion is just, like, is really doing my head in. So, uh, yeah, it, it just doesn't... It's relentlessly sweet is is the problem. Um, that you never really get a chance to think about the fact that some of these encounters or places could be quite sinister if they were played differently. Um, oh yeah, it sounds so. It sounds like too good to be true. You know, I'm expecting there to be some dark secret underneath it all, almost. And there's there's really there's really not, um, or not enough. You know, um, yeah, it's just it's a real shame. And and what all, the other thing they've done as well, uh, just to kind of round off this book, um, they've introduced um, two adventuring groups. One called the League of Malevolence. And one called, uh, I think it's like the Heroes League or whatever, uh, Valor's Call. So they're a group of good heroes and a group of bad villains who really serve no purpose um, to the rest mm-hmm. of the, the adventure, apart from the fact that they're also wandering around doing their own thing and you can cross swords with the, the bad guys and, and meet the good guys. But the reason to put it in here is in the good group are some classic... Um, Dungeons and Dragons cartoon heroes, um, Strongheart, for instance, is in there, and um, is it Elkhorn the Dwarf? Anyone who's a, a, a fan of um, old Dungeons and Dragons cartoon or, or whatever will recognise these characters. They were action figures in the seventies and eighties and stuff like that. And um, they've just—it seems like they've just thrown them into this book because they just had page count to fill. Um, and we also have uh, War Duke, which most people will will remember from um you know the guy with the winged helmet and the the fiery sword and in, in his kind of you know barbarian chainmail bikini type thing um who was a bad guy from the cartoon they put him in there a remorseless killer for hire who can be easily bought um nobody knows what warduke looks like under his dread helmet he never his dread helmet by the way because he never removes his helmet to reveal his face to others um you know i mean come on guys like it, this is just even the villains are two-dimensional and and it's just all really really bad it's just yeah there's a lot of bad stuff in there and the wrong place to put warduke as well you want you don't want to put warduke in a in this module do you You want to put him in something brutal Uh, there's no reason that he should be in here absolutely other than the fact that i think it's just another reason for people to pick the book up but yeah anyway that is that is the wild beyond the Witchlight. i think if you are enjoying the way D is going then maybe this is for you if you want to sit and play you know cutesy rootsy D and 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 just you know um race racing snails around with each other and go on a, a magical train through the through the clouds and and speak to trees and all that kind of stuff then then have at that there's, there's tons of fun in there for you but if you actually want to do any what i would call adventuring 
um, exploration or you know fighting or even even the traps and stuff are, are all very very lame. So stay tuned for Human Energy Field's first actual play of Wild Beyond the Witchlight. I mean, it would be it'd be tough. It'd be really tough. I mean, you'd you'd, you'd yeah. I, I just can't I can't envisage doing it. Yeah, I think it would annoy me to watch people playing this as it's intended. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I could. And there must be some actual players of people doing this on, online somewhere. And I think that would be the kind of thing that would make me break my computer. So, I would, I would, I'd like to include this carnival only as something to be massacred, like Anakin Skywalker massacres all the younglings. You know, it's something just for players to sweep through in like a kind of wave of chaos and mayhem. Yeah, I mean, they could have done some really good stuff with it. The carnival could come through, and maybe like it could either steal children or or steal things and like maybe the children end up working for the carnival do you know what i mean like yeah i was expecting uh, something like that yeah, yeah, yeah and it's like nah nah everyone who works for the carnival seems to be having a great time you know what i mean like oh so, fuck them yeah <laughs> what a fucking oh uh, fuck off have a great time and and <laughs> there's actually before before we leave it there's, there's yeah. a there's a mechanic in there uh, in the carnival, where there's a tracker as to how how good a time people are having, so the mood of the carnival moves from like oh, happy brilliant. to sad. And, oh, in, okay. and if the characters do things like you know upset people and don't play the rides or whatever, that and are mean to people, like the sad factor, like the the mood factor goes down. But then if they're really nice to people, the mood factor goes up. And it's just like, come on, guys, like please. <laughs> You're quantifying my emotions in a way yeah, that I don't, I don't want them really to be quantified. Bad, yeah. Okay, well, now I know how I'd spend my time is trying to get everyone as sad and as angry and depressed as possible across the whole yeah. carnival. And you'd be pleased you to know that, that it doesn't change the game. So. Oh, cool. right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Has no real effect. So, Okay, all right. Uh, well, what a, uh, what a way to end the episode, eh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's brilliant, man. Um, thank you for, for bringing this up and to be honest i'm glad we spent as much time talking about it as we did because it's regardless fascinating book i think it's going to have it's going to have ripples in the industry this book i think yeah. it's it's going to affect um how people yeah. view uh dungeon dragons and how people view role-playing games on the on the on the mass shelf as well i think we'll see a bit more of this um and i think we'll be able to pinpoint uh, which light is maybe the genesis of this movement, which I think will will really gain traction the, through the end of this year and into next. I think we'll see a lot of non-combat RPGs coming out. You heard it here first, folks. Human Energy Field, always with the predictions, usually correct in spirit, if not in fact. Um, just thanks. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you for listening, everyone, as always. Um, Thank you particularly to my friend Christian, who I know is listening from New Zealand. So thanks, pal, for tuning in. We're going to get a game set up at some point. Um, again, I'll just to reiterate briefly, uh, if you are interested in coming to Leeds at the end of November 2021, on the 28th, give one of us a message. Alternatively, Google the Dungeon Punks trial by a dice. Get yourself a ticket. Come on down. We'll see you there. Yeah, and as always, if you've got any... Um thoughts or questions about any of the games or topics that we've discussed please go on the discord and hit us up um links in the instagram bio and uh you can either share your thoughts about um D or ask me more questions about it or or whatever as i say or the cipher system or any any of the other topics that we've covered or if um or if you are going to leeds and you want to um organize uh, you know catching up before the event or whatever then yeah please do that hit us up and if you've played wild beyond the Witchlight and you have an experience of it come and let us know how it went we'd really like to hear i'm sure it was magically 
wonderfully rainbow pretty time for you and i'm sure it was uh I, everyone was very happy i'm not bitter about that at all and with that we will see you next time guys thanks for listening stay tuned stay safe and as always stay, stay hydrated, hydrated.